I'm always reminded about the beauty and the beast. And there's like this village and the mayor of the village, he calls up an all hands for the village and he brings everyone and his role there is to assure people that they're safe and that the village is not in danger and he needs to bring context into people and create some certainty and let people feel excited about the future. They don't they should not be afraid. And I feel like a lot of the time in startups, you got to wear this hat way more often than you expect. Welcome to Product with Banache. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Andre, who's currently leading product design and research at Kitch, a food tech startup at the intersection of dark kitchens, delivery and software. Previously, Andre was head of product at a couple of startups, namely Iban Wallet and UniPlaces. And Andre started his career at Google. Hi, Andre. How's it going? Hi, Axel. Super excited to be here. Appreciate the invite and very curious with this conversation. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this as well. Before we dive into today's topics, tell us a little bit about you, your background. What have you been doing so far? Sure. So last couple of years have been fully focused on product and especially around helping people become better product people, better product thinkers, and ultimately better product builders. The last couple of years have been with Kitsch. We started a couple of years ago, 2019, food tech company. It was a great timing to start a food tech company pre-pandemic. We didn't know was going to happen. <laughs> Probably the one good thing that came out of it was our growth. Yeah, setting up product engineering, design team, bringing a lot of great talent into the mix and building technology that wasn't yet built because the acceleration of food delivery really started at least at an exponential rate in 2020. And yes, since we sold the company to Glovo, so a unicorn based out of Spain, we yep. were operating for about a year and a half. Yeah. Before that, as you mentioned, a couple startups in the fintech area, in marketplaces, and last but not least, running PM programs at One Most PM and helping companies at Chilling.vc operate at the next level and helping invest in the next cohort of talented founders coming out of. That's amazing. Thank you for the context. So you talk about One Month PM. I think it's really interesting because we're in a similar space at Panache which is really about how do you train and coach this next generation of product managers to really excel at their jobs. Tell us a little bit about that journey. What drove you to do it in the first place? And yeah, how are you managing this now? I know you've also got a, a full-time day job. How does that work? Yeah, you slip a bit less than you wanted, but I think it's, it's based on a, a very good mission, at least a, a mission very close to my heart. So how did this start a couple of years ago? This was 2020. We were all stuck at home and Got a few companies pinging me about training their product managers, coaching them. And I never did corporate training or anything like that. I used to teach. I still teach at the university. Never did this from a corporate standpoint. And I started thinking about this and realized that, yeah, this could be cool, but it would be even cooler if I got anyone who wanted to learn product and how to think product getting trained like this. So I started Messing around and with a few concepts and ideas, I started speaking with a few people around like what were their training goals, what would make them join a training program, what wouldn't, and landed on a few insights that were critical to develop and design one month PM. 
a couple of them were people didn't want to take time out of their of their day-to-day job. Like vacations are expensive because you don't have many of them. At the same time, most mm-hmm. training contents out there is quite expensive. Yeah. Not a lot of people have or can afford to pay it. And even if the company can sponsor, it takes a lot of hoops to actually get it sponsored. Yeah, it's not definitely and not straightforward, right? It isn't. And last but not the least, people want to have fun. They want engaging content. That's why all this like Instagram and TikTok have so much adoption. It's like people get addicted to that because they know it entertains them. When they think training, they think, oh, this is going to be hassle. It's boring. Exactly. So I wanted to design something that kind of that the customer needs. And that's what we did. And One Month PM has been quite successful ever since in the last two years. Three is the third year that we're operating. And that's the inception. That's where it came from. Thanks for sharing that story. I think it's pretty inspiring to doing this on the side, on top of everything else, right? We know as yeah. product managers are busy people. There are a few things I want to talk about today. I think talk a little bit about your experience. And if I go back to the conversation I had with Gibson Biddle a couple of years back, he was talking about how he sees different profiles of product managers. So there's like typically the builder and the scaler, and then there's the super scaler. It sounds like you fall into the first bucket of early stage startups. You come in and you build out the product function and you hire the product people and you essentially build out the product function, right? Yeah, definitely. I would characterize myself and my skill set and my experience. I would definitely be on the builder side. I think it's something that excites me a lot. There's this concept of a T-shaped person. It's mm-hmm. huge growth and product extensively. And I believe I'm very much of a T-shaped person. I prefer to be very broad in the skill set and then let the customer feedback and the results tell where to go deeper. And I think the builder type of product manager forces you to cover as many areas as possible because there's nothing. Like you've got to build it. And that means managing the product, setting up the vision, creating a function or format or a structure that ships stuff and at the same time is pragmatic and cares about people because you're not doing that alone. And it falls less into the policy type of stuff or politics type of stuff or sometimes even team org type of stuff. It focuses on people actually grinding and getting something out. And especially if you're in a competitive space, it pushes you to really go deep and understand what customers really want. Because keep in mind, everyone's already solving their problems some way, often in an effective and efficient way. That's why there's innovation. That's why new products come to the market. But still, you're competing with something and you got to stand out. And often that something is way more complete than whatever you've built so far. So it pushes you to, with very limited resources, often more limited than anyone else, focuses you on, is this really what we want? Because we might not have another shot. And I think that really gets the most out of people, especially people that have the mindset of builder. That excites me a lot. I love to be around those types. That's really fascinating. You also, you've got this experience where you started your career at Google, which must be very different from working in an early stage startup. I like the way you talk about different types of product managers and the different probably skills that are required. You talked a little bit about, touched on politics, for example, which is an aspect of what you can face when you're in a larger organization. So We've got these almost like two categories of product managers, right? So zero to one product yeah. managers and then one to N product managers, right? Yeah. So how do you envisage these two different roles and what are some of the skills you think are necessary for a person to thrive in either of these two buckets? Yeah, so 
very different, right? Zero to one, uh, the concept is, is like bringing something that doesn't exist or it's in a very non-market fit state into the one, which is that product market fit or some traction level that kind of says, okay, we found something because it doesn't need to be original version of what product market fit might look. You might pivot, but that doesn't mean you didn't be the one. But that's very different from what when, where you might have hit some level of product market fit. You might be looking into scaling. You might be looking to expanding segments or product suite or value proposition, but still you hit on something. There's whether it's revenue, whether it's traction, whether it's customers, something is there. And then the end is growth, is scale, is economics, is something, which is, and that requires very different skill sets. I think maybe a couple of main differences or core differences is that in the zero to one, there's no formal structure, no specific job spec or no expectations from a approach, like what you should do. There's nothing like that because you don't know what is in between today, which let's assume it's zero and the one. You don't even know where one is, how you can <laughs> literally quantify one. So you got to do whatever it takes. You got to be extremely flexible. Uh, you got to be almost like a sponge that's soaking information, data discovery. You got to validate that your hypothesis makes sense. And even the way you validate them, there's no playbook for this. Doesn't mean, oh, as a PM who's validating hypothesis, I need to do A, B, and C. No, you don't know. You don't know what validation is going to look for your type of customers, your type of product, your industry, your moment in life, in the life cycle of your product. You don't know. You need to be extremely flexible, adapt really quickly, to accept that your best plans likely fail and that the best outcomes will come from things that you didn't realize would make sense. In one to end, it's actually very different. If you do this, you'll actually be unsuccessful. Because there's structure, there's expectations, there's process, there's people and there's complexity of communication between people within teams and between teams, people within teams and teams between teams. And I think if you try to shape up when you're ready in one to end, you'll actually get the net negative effect out of your own process. Again, very different. And I think it's different people, different mindsets, different approaches for each type of model. I think this is maybe the core we can go deeper into any of these two, but I'd say like faith level, this is how I would differentiate both type of roles based on the context and the environment that each type of product manager is going through and what success looks like. In mind, like zero to one, success looks like some validation of traction. When means a continuous growth in the area that makes sense. Like again, growth can be top line, can be economics, can be market expansion can be a value proposition or user journey or depth of the value chain can be a lot of different things. Rarely you think about that in zero to one. You have a lot of experience in in building these startups and their product teams. I think I'd be interested to understand how do you hire for these people, right? Because now you've now that you've built a few of these teams, what are some of the things you're looking for in product managers that are going to work on this zero to one phase and what have been some of the traits that you've seen in some of the really successful ones? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think hiring zeros one is really hard. It's going to be a paradox. It's hard, but it's also easier. Why is it hard? Because as there is no playbook to what execution looks like in zero to one, you can't just say, oh, I need a person that is this and that. Doesn't, you don't even know what you need because you're in between the zero and the one. So that makes it hard. There's no, ask any founder what they're, to, or any product leader of a startup that's trying to hire maybe their first PM, 
and they need to write job spec and try to put it somewhere. Oftentimes it's super wide. Like you have everything there, literally. You compare that to a one-to-end type of job role and yeah, and it's much simpler, much more focused, much more oriented to a specific need of the organization or the team or the product lifecycle. So that part makes the hiring on zero to one much harder. Why did I say it's also easier? Because the grit, the attitude, the way you face things, stuff that can easily come out in interviews are much easier to identify. It's nearly binary. Either you have it or you don't. Either you behave in a certain way. And that way means passion, means energy, means almost an unsettling curiosity or need to know or, or like this type of things that you can easily see if a person has it in a conversation. So much more important in the probability of success, which is never 100%, but it influences so much more the probability of success in a product builder or product thinker or product manager in a zero to one than in a one to one. While it's important in a one to one, in zero to one, it's almost the variable that will make the difference. Because again, it, yes, it matters if you know what product is, if you know a couple of frameworks, if you've done it before, but your attitude early on is so much more important. And you being able to identify that through the hiring process, oftentimes it's easier than the nuance of what you know as a PM. In one-to-end, like your ability to have done it before, to know how to apply the frameworks, to know the blind spots of each framework, why it makes sense, why it doesn't. It's sometimes harder to identify, but then again, you're much narrower. Your attitude can be adjusted. You're going to go into a complex organization that has their own processes, their flows, their rituals, their ceremonies, and then you just adapt and you can focus more on what the person knows rather than the attitude by itself. So you never, you should never forget the attitude here. So just to recap, I think this is quite similar to other people's frameworks we've heard from the show, which is there's sometimes this three level system. There's attitude, aptitude, and skills, skills or competencies. I think the skills part, people can learn the craft skill side of things. There's a lot of, they can go on one month PM. And upskill yeah, and other bunch of things all come to us at Panache. But the aptitude and the attitude, there's no way you're going to instill this in a person. It comes with experience. It comes with personality. It comes, it's basically who people are at their core. So yeah, definitely. that's what you are optimizing for in this early exactly. stage hiring, right? Exactly. And it, uh, yes. And there's also something else that matters. Like, I do believe that attitude and aptitude can be coached, but I think a manager should put a lot of their time on coaching those two areas on a person. Now, these areas, they don't develop themselves from one day to the other. It takes time. It takes reinforcements on their learning. It takes reinforcing on their learning. It, it takes multiple use cases and experiences and exposure to situations that make you change your habits or change your point of view or mental model. And that takes time. And oftentimes, startups don't have the time for that. And that's why I say it's very important to understand that these things that take time to coach rather than, for example, understanding a framework on product or understanding how to apply a certain tool or go through a certain ritual, et cetera. Those are easier and faster to teach, but they're less impactful, medium, long-term. But oftentimes startups in zero to one environments, they don't have time. That's why hiring for attitude aptitude in startups is often better. It also brings a lot more diverse candidates into the mix. You don't get as narrowed into the pool of oftentimes non-existing product people or product managers. A lot of companies say like startups say, oh, how do I hire PMs? There, there is no PMs. And I say, maybe you don't need a PM. You need a person with right attitude and some knowledge and go through a coaching of the discipline rather than coaching the attitude. 
in one-to-end, for example, oftentimes it's the reverse. You have the time to do that. That's why you can invest that way. But yeah, this is at least how I see for hire, at least how I've hired house. Do you feel stuck not knowing how to tackle a problem? Are you looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use to truly deliver impact in your role. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square, and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching for their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io, book a seat to one of our many programs, and raise your product game today. Check out panache.io. That's P A N A S H dot I O. That sounds great. Thank you. Another question I have, which is almost like, Flip side of the coin here, have you been in situations where you found some great candidates and for some reason you didn't hire them? And I'm really interested to hear about what were they lacking? Okay. It's also important to find what great is, right? Mm-hmm. You rarely get great across all spectrums of you assessing a person and knowing whether that person makes sense to a certain role, right? So great is already a very hard, most of the time. The reason I chose not to move someone through a hiring process is because someone from the team, and normally every single person I've hired went through a cross-functional assessment, design, engineering, data, product, every single person can be a leader, can be the head of these areas, or can be just a senior person. Oftentimes I go for senior people. They talk with this person. They go through, they challenge them in a bit in in some areas, oftentimes the areas that they've struggled the most in the past, the relationship with product people. So they test them, they go. And I can find someone to be good and I think it would fit the build, but then I get some from any person on these areas that say, I have a maybe. And we have a couple of principles in terms. And one of the principles we refer the most is if it's a maybe, it's a no. And for product, this really matters for us because product managers are their communication levels, right? They exist in the middle of other areas and they make communication flow faster, flow better, and flow more frequent. And if there's a maybe in one of these areas, the probability of the area having a problem with the communication flow, maybe because they found a red flag on the person or a yellow flag on the person, maybe because they didn't create chemistry that trust with the person. Something happened. And I tried to explore that to understand if that maybe is really a no, or is it just something that did flow well in the conversation? I tried to compare that to someone else's notes to guarantee that it's backed by rational and, and there's some truth behind that. But in the end, if the maybe persists, then probably that's the reason why I'm not moving someone. Prefer nowadays, of course, again, this depends a lot on the stage of a company. You're yourself. hired the first person. There's no one else you can against, then I'm going to trust my own instincts and the information I got. But if there's someone else, some other teams, and if this person's being hired to be in charge of product or within some teams, I feel like nowadays the feedback from these people, especially who work on a more particular operational environment with this person will matter way more than my own instinct of a person. I'll be a razor in the end of a process, of course, but oftentimes the reason I, I didn't hire someone to go through is more of someone else's maybe and a very valid maybe that's actually 
Okay, thank you. To stay on this topic of high-performing product managers, specifically in zero-to-one situations when, you know, you're building the product, you're building the company, you talk a lot about, we talked a lot about attitude and aptitude. And I think for me, part of what makes a great product manager, and you've just touched on the communication side of things, is you have the craft skills and the human skills. And I think the human skills actually is where you see the spikes in some of the excellent product managers, because the craft skills, like we, we talked about earlier, people can acquire these, right? You can get training, you can upskill. Human skills, a little bit more complex. And you talk about some of the traits and qualities of a good product manager. And you talk about the analogy of how product managers sometimes need to wear a mayor hat. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think the product ads is a very common industry thing. I don't know how to call it. It's something a lot of people talk because product managers tend to wear a lot of different hats throughout their weeks, sometimes throughout their days. They can use the strategist hat, the psychologist hat, the project manager hat, the researcher hat. You end up using many hats. Very I will also suffer from schizophrenia, right? Yeah, exactly. It feels like that movie where you have multiple personalities, but I think it's, an, it's a necessity, it's a requirement. That's also why yeah. product isn't a role for everyone. And it also depends where you, whether you are in a zero to one environment or a one to end. I believe I might be wrong that you end up wearing way more hats in zero to one, though you wear them with less depth than in one to one, you still get to wear a lot of the hats. And a hat that I've seen in zero to one, sorry, is I call it the mayor hat. And my analogy is, or my message for it is always the, if you look at a, a movie or a show, always reminded about the beauty and the beast. And beauty and the beast, there's like this village and the mayor of the village, he calls a, an all, it, it seemed like an all hands for the village. In the, I think it's in the coffee shop or like in the local bar or something. And he brings everyone and his role there is to assure people that they're safe and that the village is not in danger. And he needs to bring context into people and create some certainty and let people feel excited about the future. They don't, they shouldn't be afraid. And I feel like a lot of the time you got to wear this way more often than you expect. You got to be in, in this case, it's an official leader because you were elected, but in startups, often they see you're not the leader, but in a certain sense, you are. People look up to you to lead them, even if not officially as a manager, but as someone in the organization can be your tiny squad, can be the entire product engineering and design organization. But they look up to you to pass a message, communicate the certainty and the uncertainty, tell them what they should hear and what they shouldn't. Listen to them as a mayor would listen to their constituents and people voting for him or her on what concerns them, what makes them feel safe in their job, what makes them believe in an exciting future. And that, that is a bit the role of a mayor that you need to kind of be every single day. And this is even more important as the future is uncertain. I think a lot of companies and teams are going through that right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in 2023, what's going to happen. Will customers and people buy our products? Is going to be our the demand there? Is the market going to go into a recession? This is the moment where you got to put the mayor hat every single day. Um, yeah. Even if you were not elected officially, meaning you're the leader of the org, you got to put that hat and let people feel good about the future, feel that their job and the better they perform, 
the more likely is that future to be a good future. And I call that the mayor. I bet other people call it differently, but I've always reminded about this story about beauty and beast. This also reminds me of this point you make around as a product manager, sometimes you're not actually managing people. In some respect, people are looking up to you for guidance and leadership. So it's almost like you have some influence capital, right? Capital is given to you by people who are looking up to you. How do you think product managers, especially in zero to one context, can use that capital or how can they more efficiently, first of all, build that capital and then use it to make sure they're steering the you know, the practice in the right way. Yeah, I think capital here in the concept of building up trust in others or from others is built through actions more than words. A lot of people look at public as the person communicates. Can be communicated to a large audience, to a small audience, one-to-one, or communicated through project management or through discovery. So they look up to this person as the person who communicates. But I think capital is built way more through the actions of a person than anything else. I love the concept from Ken Norton of bring the donuts. And the concept bring the donuts is you solve whatever is in front of your team so that they can run as fast as possible. You remove obstacles. This concept of, oh, the product person is the CEO of the product, which I don't really like because the CEO has inherent authority. I prefer to look at the product manager being the janitor of the product team, which is, You clean the floor, you remove the obstacles, you take everything out so that people can run safely and as fast as possible towards whatever the goal is. When you said this, I just pictured an office on fire and because the floor are clean and there's no obstacles, people are running the fastest they can to the emergency exit. That's what came to mind. That would be a very successful outcome if there's a fire, (laughs) right? Like you did your job there, you did the job, you should. And the way I think about this is your actions to bringing the donuts to removing the obstacles, barriers, not just saying, oh, I will remove this, actually removing them. It will make that capital go up. I usually say there's this concept about public management where shipping the product, actually bringing features to production is the engineering team's job. And I say that's false. It's everyone's job. That's just the finding of releasing other, but it's everyone's job. And I love the moments where the team is shipping product and it's going through the rituals that allows the product to be shipped production in a safe, reliable way that matches the expectations of stakeholders and customers. And I remember that oftentimes the, the engineering team came together, goes through, you might call it a pre-mortem or everything that could go wrong, goes through the checklist of this is ready for production, et cetera, et cetera. And I loved to be there. It felt like joining people in the trenches and you couldn't do absolutely much regarding that. What I could do is filling up the gap on everything else. Was it bringing food? Was it preparing communication like an email or a Slack message? Was it reviewing the content or the copy? Was it going through logs of stuff that they were testing and they could go through them themselves? And I said, look, I'm here. I have eyes. I can think. I can do that for you and help you guys. And I think being present and acting this way, whether you think that's part of your role as a PM or not, is what builds capital. And then you can use that later on, whether it's asking people who are way more senior to do unsexy things that they shouldn't be expecting to do, but it's necessary, whether it's coaching more junior people where they are super busy with much more complex problems, 
But if you need them to do that, that's where you use the capital. But that capital is built by your actions, by doing things that maybe the team wasn't expecting you to do. But hey, there you are. And it helped them, made them more successful. It made them run faster. So I'd say that's for me how you build capital. And oftentimes that those actions are definitely not within your job spec. You're not expecting to do. That's when like the moment you think, especially zero to one, the moment you think, oh, this is not part of my job. Like it's not me. That is the moment that if you do that, you build. And I think that is very different in one to one, where maybe it's, the job is way more or specific. Or yeah, the, the boundaries of the job are clearer. Exactly. That's it. Okay. That's super insightful. Thank you for sharing. I'm also really curious to get a better feeling of, based on your experience so far in building, advising, coaching, training, what would you say were some of the biggest challenges for you as a product leader? And how did you address these? biggest challenges. So I think a very common big challenge is when you go from PM to PM manager. I think that's massive because as a PM, if you think about what the problem looks like and what success is, getting your product to solving problems and customers to choosing it over your competitors or over the alternative behaviors to you, that's success. How do you optimize for success? Ideally, you run good discovery, you validate that the opportunities, aka the problems that your customers are facing are clear and they correlate with, if I solve them, they see value. And you design a roadmap through solutions that better fit those opportunities. You run a prioritization process that highlights what is the most likely solution to fit that opportunity and therefore being chosen by the customer or they see in value in it. And then you optimize the organization and the process to build that in the shortest amount of time with the highest level of quality and you bring it to the customer, right? That's your strategy as a PM. Makes sense. When you go to a PM manager, suddenly that's not your job. That's your team's job. Your job is guaranteeing that PM in your team is set for success that he or she has all the tools, all the knowledge, and that the processes around them are designed in a way that makes them more successful. That transition is hard for a few reasons. One, suddenly the product is no longer yours. And if you intervene too much, then you're overstepping that PM, you're setting them for failure. And more importantly, you're sabotaging them at some point, even if more than that, which is normal. You're sabotaging their ability to be successful. So you're removing confidence that in the future they'll be able to do. They'll rely on you to do on their behalf and you're removing leverage from your position. That's bad. Number two, you might no longer be the person who knows best what that product needs. Because whether you like it or not, you're a bit more detached from the ground. You're not so much in that turbulent level of really understanding what the team is going through, what the customer really is saying, what the stakeholders really mean, what technical depth exists, what problem in the process there is. The PM, as you or the PM now knows best. So if you try to make some decisions, your decisions don't actually be the best decisions. So the transition towards a, how am I making sure that UPM are asking the right questions, are analyzing it the right way, are deploying the right rituals and ceremonies to assess whether your choice of solutions and rollout makes sense becomes way more important. So how do I around this? Like, how do I set myself for success? And what was the difficult transition, at least for me? And I think every person who goes from IC to manager of ICs, I start realizing that my product are my people and their skills are the features that I need to develop. 
and deploy and bring to market. How better their skills are at doing all the things I said is exactly the same as how better a feature of my product is. So if I started thinking like this, then I could actually treat my team as if they're products and features, right? I can run discovery, meaning, okay, let me see the people impacted by my team, what they're feeling. Like, how is my team delivering value or not for that? Whether it's stakeholders, customers, or processes. How is the iteration of those skills? Are these iterations going the right direction or not? Meaning, is the skill becoming better to do a certain part of the job or not? But also, looking at the depth. In this case, depth is more cultural. It's like, where are bad habits residing in the team? What are things that shouldn't be happening? happening? What skills are they not executing on? that they should, are they less that data-driven as they should? Are they not running enough discovery? Are they not communicating well enough with stakeholders? What is happening? All of those things influence the quality. Does that make sense? It does, actually. Actually, it's taking me back to some of my earlier days as a product manager, and I definitely can relate to the transition from a PM to a lead PM role, where I was managing a few product managers. And I can definitely relate to one of the points you mentioned around how to find balance between coaching them, but then again, not overstepping because sometimes you have both craft skills knowledge, but also domain knowledge. And there is this difference of posture between a coach and a consultant, right? The coach is there to help you navigate a complex situation, but they're only there to help you navigate it. You are the one to find a solution. Yeah. And the consultant is the person that comes in with the solution, right? So I think sometimes I've definitely been guilty of this, especially when it's your first time moving into a management role. You tend to come in and very quickly bring the solution because there's something quite counterproductive, I think, for us human beings to see that there's a fire burning and to actually let it burn. So yeah, I can totally relate. Yeah, and I think like on the fire burning analogy, I think a big difference between zero to one and one to one is in one to one, oftentimes you are rewarded to communicating a fire and shouting out fire. In zero to one, like people don't care you shout fire. They care that you put the fire out and they don't even care if you shout the fire and say someone needs to do it, like you need to do it. Maybe there is no other people to do it. So I think that's a big difference. I've seen large orgs where People shouted fire. The successful ones simply shouted fire and pointed to someone specifically in the org <laughs> to do that. To put it out. And, and like the time between shouting fire, pointing to the person, fire out in a zero to one was enough to kill it. Yeah. In one plan, no, because there's already some safety net. There's already a product. Maybe there's customers. Maybe they're, if they have higher NPS, they'll be more forgiving to fires, et cetera, et cetera. In zero to one, no way. You don't. <laughs> don't have the capital from a product standpoint to withstand that in your especially. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. We're coming up to one of the sections of the show that I really enjoy, which is the treasure chest. Basically, the idea here is I want to find out whether in your career so far as a product person, there have been helpful resources you've used to be impactful in different contexts you've been in. These could be articles blogs, books you've read, or even videos you've watched that were a little bit of a flipping moment for you where you actually realized something. And yeah, I'd be just really in- interested to, to learn a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. I think 
Okay, I'm going to try to give a bit of a diverse answer here. Because I think, yeah, please. Look, I go back a lot. I think this was Naval Ravikant that said this. Yes. Read, uh, he says something like uh, around reading, because I think reading mm-hmm. is core. But I'll go to that. But he says something, read what you love until you love to read. Okay, I think I can connect this to like consuming information or resources. Like consume what you love until you love to consume these resources. A lot of people force themselves to, I got to read this type of articles, this type of books, or listen to this content. And I really don't like it, but I'm forcing myself. So you're always dragging. And when it comes a moment where you're stressed, where you don't have the time, where something's happening, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it because everyone defaults to what they feel more comfortable. Yeah. So I'm going to give a bit of a diverse answer because what you love might be different from just one single resource. I think... Reading is definitely something that you should do. And more important than reading something specifically is creating a, a strong criteria of consuming. The content can be books. I definitely recommend a lot of different product books, but can also be listening to a set of podcasts around product and around orbital topics of product. It can be psychology, it can be sociology, it can be history, it can be design. Your science. Exactly. There's so much type of content, but listening to it, on a continuous fashion is what's going to make the difference because it reinforces your own learning of whatever you got to tackle. It's, it's, a, it's about intellectual stimulation as well, right? That, you got to create that. And keep in mind, like as going to the gym or working out, everything is a muscle. Like your brain is a muscle. If you do it continuously over time, then you create a habit and your muscle compounds. Yeah, exactly. And suddenly you see yourself wanting to do that because it's either part of something you're used to or because your body or your mind is asking for it. So I, I definitely recommend, and again, start by consuming what you love until you love to consume and then you broaden your perspective of things that will teach you how to become better. I think also thinking, wait, like, what will improve me, myself, crafts, my execution, my presence? What do you need? And I think that leads me to my second point here, which is, Create a bit of a council of people around you where you can debate with them, where you can discuss, and more importantly, where you can feedback. Maybe you need to improve yourself communicating, or maybe you need to become a better storyteller. Maybe you need to become a better analyst of situations. Maybe you need to become better at reading people or reading the room or environments. Maybe you need to become better at translating your thoughts into a structure or process. Like people around you. Whether they work with you, whether informally you have weekly moments with them, can be calls, can be dinners, lunches, it doesn't matter. But those people will be able to tell you, look, I think this is an area that you should develop yourself. So I think having these people around you with a curious mindset will be an invaluable resource to make you a better version of yourself. And I think then last but not the least, I think there's amazing courses out there course, I'm plugging here one month at the end, but I think there's a lot of different courses out there that you should definitely hop on and go for it because I think it, like I'm going to give the one month PM example. Like one of the things that I've realized through discovery is that you might want to consume content. Imagine it's like recorded content. Eventually you'll get time. Eventually you'll start skipping it. Eventually you'll give up. The way we built One Month PM as a live program is more like a personal trainer. There's a specific slot. It's going to happen. It's live. You're there. You're accountable to be there. It works like a PT, right? And then you join and it forces you to be there the moment instead of multitasking, whether in your computer or on your mind, 
that forces you to be there. It makes a big difference. And I think these types of content and courses make a big difference for you to improve yourself. So this is a bit diverse, but it tries to touch on different solutions to the same problem, which is what can deliver impacts on your own. It reminds me of a conversation I had with someone recently who talked about how we are product managers and we, most of the time we put the product we're working on ahead yep. of ourselves. And she said, we are our own product, right? We take exactly. care of ourselves. So how do we improve ourselves? Exactly. And you mentioned, how do you find solutions to be the better version of this product exactly. manager That's and exactly. also of yourself? Exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Second question, what would you say are some of the key accelerators you've had in your career? That could be having mentoring from somebody specific, training, learn, taking a course specifically or being coached. Yeah, I think this answer for me is super easy. It's your manager. It's as simple as like your manager is the greatest career accelerator or detractor, period. I know a lot of people can't afford to choose their manager, either because you need a job or because transitioning is either hard or impossible, or because you have a set of personal situations that impede you from simply switching jobs or looking for a different challenge. Like I know that reality is what happens to the majority, of people, but your manager is the greatest accelerator of your career. A person who not only coaches you and mentors you and helps you understand where your blind spots are, your development areas are, and where you're strong will allow you to invest in the right areas, will give you the content, the moments, the exposure to develop that. But that person will also bet on you, bet on your strengths, make you be the best version, the most successful version, be the environment that will help you achieve those objectives, will cheer for you internally, externally, will give you the opportunity to, or not, you're not ready, will improve the probability of you being in the position that gets the bet out of you, but also delivers happiness. I usually say that a manager is someone who's in charge of giving you hope, right? And that person is the thing that will accelerate the most or detract the most your career. Uh, so I think most people that they look at their managers as a bureaucracy or processual or a hierarchical need, rather than someone who can really be leveraged for that. Someone who can make a difference, yeah. They're missing out. And maybe they're choosing to see them just because the manager is not great. I usually say both managers stop. This is the reality. There's not that many people who know what managing other people actually, what good looks like. I had a former manager teaching me that you need to have tasted great foods to cook great And not a lot of managers have tasted great food, aka having been well-managed. So they won't know how to cook great food, be great managers, right? But there's also ways to develop yourself in that area. And I think a lot of managers, I'd say most managers don't even push themselves to develop themselves. But I think that is it. So if you're seeing managers more of a bureaucrat, there's someone who's there because management needs to exist. And then that person, that manager is actually a good manager. There's potential there. Then you're missing out. And you should definitely go to him or her and address the situation saying, well, you are the person that can boost me, that can accelerate me, that can make me go to the next level, achieve my goals. But I don't feel good like that. Let's have a conversation on how you can do that. 
I think that single conversation, again, I don't think it's going to work in 100% of managers because most managers are not the right type of people. But I think this is the thing. Like you are able, and then if you are in a situation where you can choose your, okay, have that privilege, have that power, then do that. Prioritize doing that. If you're going through a hiring process, interview your manager more than that person is interviewing you, more than interviewing the company, more than assessing the industry. Your manager is going to make so much difference. That would say, pick an amazing manager over product and industry and maybe company as well. That person is going to be. Thanks for sharing. My last question, and also my favorite, actually, is really about what advice would you give your early career self, right? So think about 10, maybe 12 years back when you started working in tech. Think about that version of Andre. What would you tell him? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I don't know if I would listen to me, but I hope I, I would say there's this concept. A couple of people create threads around. I really enjoyed it. It's called the luck surface area, right? If you think about luck as a random thing, as a random concept, like you don't know when luck will, right? But let's imagine luck as rain, like luck rain. You want to be struck by luck. So the probability of being rained is to increase the area where you might be so that when it rains on you, that area is that luck surface area. So how do you expand it? Well, you expand it by exposing yourself to situations that you wouldn't naturally expose yourself. That includes saying yes to challenges, going to meetups, setting up a call with someone, joining an event, joining a hackathon, joining a course, putting yourself out there, creating content, maybe engaging in conversations, asking people to introduce themselves and knowing and letting them know how they achieve a certain objective or some success. Like that's those connections, that network role in those situations yourself to increase the luck surface area because any of these people, and they all correlate with people, if you analyze the answer. Sometime in the future, these people might be the person who says, look, I have an opportunity. Or look, I think you'd be the best fit for this. Or look, I want to give you something. I want to expose you to something else, which then unlocks, opens a new door. And those who choose to not do this, they say those who choose to maybe watch Netflix over going through this hardship, right? That prioritize some other type of comfort, that, which is fine. You can do that. That's okay. But you also need to know what you're trading. Trading off is the probability of luck raining on you in the future. And I think, yeah, of course, hard work. I think this is something that I would need to say, which is like hard work really pays off. Hard work and putting the hours really makes the difference because when you're competing with someone, whoever works the hardest has the more probability of succeeding, but also the one who gets luck raining them, be differentiated, will stand out in a moment where hard work then comes to play. So I'd say other than saying recurrent, I'd say increase the probability that luck rains on you. Yeah, that's very inspiring. Thank you for sharing. Andre, I want to thank you for spent invested in doing the show. It was my pleasure having you on the show. Good luck with everything you're doing at Kitch. Good luck with One Month PM. Thank um, you. Quick one, if people want to reach out to you, can they do that through LinkedIn? 
Yeah, they can for sure. I get a ton of messages. I try to answer to everyone. It's also really hard to differentiate people asking like for advice and people selling software. But I try hard. It's not easy. Tell me about it. For sure. For sure. Thank you so much. And then, yeah, speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. I will appreciate the invite again. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.